Well, we've been tracking through the book of John on Sunday mornings for, the, for this year. We started on the first day of the year, January 1st. And on the first Sunday, when we first kind of dove into uh, this idea of tracking through the book of John, we identified that uh, for a lot of new believers, we, and maybe you as well, we will encourage new believers to read the book of John. And the reason we do that, it's kind of the first go-to book of the Bible, is because over and over, the Gospel of John is describing who Jesus is. And as we've looked at our memory verse kind of for, the, for, our, uh, for our whole series, John chapter 20, verse 31, kind of describes the why behind the Gospel of John. It says, these were written that you may believe. That's the signs and the wonders and the stories of Jesus. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life life in his name. And so we, so that's why uh, many times it's the go-to book for new believers, the book of John. We also said that very first Sunday is that uh, even though it's the first place to go, it doesn't mean it's an easy book to get our mind around. In fact, it's quite complex. And if you've been pre-reading, which I'm afraid to ask, but I'm just going to do it. How many of you have been pre-reading the book of John? Oh, a few extras. Good. We're picking up momentum. All right. So each week we want to encourage you to come to church, have pre-read the chapter. We're going to take a chapter a week. And so we've been pre-reading John. And uh, this is a tough chapter. There are so many different ways we could go. There's so many different ways as you study this. It's, there's an, um, a massive amount of uh, of material in John chapter 6. In fact, I, was, I estimated probably over 80 pages, it might be over 100, it didn't count them, of working notes this week just for this message. And uh, there's incredible theological depth in John chapter 6. And, uh, and there's, let me just give you a quick idea of, of the different directions we could go, and then I'll kind of talk about where we're going. But uh, it, there's a tie between chapter 5 and, uh, and commenting on Moses at the end of chapter 5, and then the manna in the desert. There's images of Exodus, of the Exodus Old Testament. Uh, there's images of Passover and then a communion, which by the way, at the end of the service today, we're going to partake in communion together. It's going to be great. Um, in John chapter 6, it's the first I am statement. In the whole gospel of John, there are seven of these. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And the idea that God, Jesus is the ever-present God. He is eternal God. Um, the sheer power of the story at the beginning of John chapter 6 um, is on display. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, is in all four Gospels and is a significant uh, miracle and uh, testimony. We'll talk about that today. Um, then there's this massive uh, ramification of Jesus walking on the water, uh, even a tie to the Old Testament there where Moses stood before the Red Sea and walked through the water. Now Jesus is walking on the water and uh, it blow your mind when you read that or kind of study that. And then Jesus follows up his previous discourse on his deity and he continues his claim that he is God. He's laying out this course as if, as if he's on trial. He's saying, look, I am the Messiah. 
I am the Christ. I am the one that you have been waiting for. And he cranks it up even another notch. He turns up the volume. And what we see is that when we get to John chapter 6, he is halfway through his earthly ministry, the three years that he served in, in ministry. And we know that because of the Passover schedule. And he's at the pinnacle of success, that people are following him. Um, there's, his popularity is swelling. But where the religious leaders in chapter 5 struggled with his claims and wanted to kill him, we talked about that last week, now we are seeing a pruning of the disciples, kind of a cutting away. And by verse 60, in fact, if you're there in John chapter 6, verse 60, it says, On hearing it, many of the disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then we find out in verse 66, many people walked away. So what we see in one chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, we see about 15,000 to 20,000 people literally being fed to being narrowed down to the crowd in the synagogue. And then by the end of the chapter, Jesus turns to the 12 and that's all that's left. And we see from 15,000 to 12. And my prayer is that as you've been pre-studying and I believe that the Holy Spirit can speak to us. And it's interesting, when you read a chapter like this, it, we can, you know, can kind of understand how many have ever heard that Jesus fed 5,000 people, right? You've heard that before, right? Uh, all the not, heads nodded. How many knew that Jesus walked on water, right? We, we've known this. But my prayer is that when we read this, that it will take your breath away. That the, the truth of the word, that th we don't want a familiar story to get in the way of the wonder of God. Listen, when it says that Jesus walked on water, and in verse 19, it says that the disciples were afraid, they would have been freaked out. And when you read that, and you understand that, and you want to experience that, and then they teleported to the shore. I mean, that story is awesome. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's awesome right? And then you read the largest miracle that Jesus ever did, the most significant, arguably, outside of the resurrection of him coming back to life, and no one disputes it. There were all these eyewitnesses, up to 20,000 people that experienced five loaves, two fish being multiplied. That is awesome. It's incredible. And I pray that as you read these stories and you track along with us, that you will experience that awe. Just let it take your breath away. And today, my prayer is as we narrow the focus, that Jesus himself will speak to each and every one of us. That's been my prayer this week. And I've been working hard on this. And, and I've said, Lord, even this morning, I've said, Lord, take all of this that we have and let, it, let us come to a point where we can, we can be in awe of who you are and respond to the claim that you are the Son of God. And so I want to start kind of with a big picture and then kind of work our way down. When we look at the big picture of what John is doing through his gospel, John is writing so that we will believe and have life, and that's abundant life and eternal life. I believe that. And so in John chapter 1, let me just give you some background, especially for those that are new. There was an introduction to who Jesus is, kind of a divine genealogy, and uh, describes him as the word and the word became flesh and then that flesh dwelled among us and then john the baptist he's testifying of who jesus is and then jesus picks his first disciples all of that in john chapter one 
In John chapter 2, we see his first miracle, the first sign of many signs throughout, and those signs are going to lead us to believe in, and to have eternal life, right? And uh, the waters turn into wine, and then right after that, Jesus goes into the temple and he clears the temple. We didn't study it, but hopefully you read it, and um, the, the magnitude of that, the idea is that, look, it is not going to be business as usual at this point. John chapter 3, we, Jesus reveals himself to Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, and he describes that he must be born again. In John chapter 3, the you know, great verse, John 3, 16, uh, is, is right in the middle. And then at the end, John the Baptist says, look, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. And if you weren't here for that service, you need to get online, listen to John chapter 3, and uh, let that bless you. John chapter 4, we see the, the uh, conversation with the Samaritan woman. Great story. Jesus reveals himself to the lowest of the low, to the outcast, right? And, uh, and he reveals himself as living water. And it's a picture of salvation, that Jesus is uh, the Savior. And what I love about this is that people are believing at this point. People are following him. The word is spreading. His popularity is growing. And then Jesus starts to heal. He heals a boy at the end of chapter 4. In John chapter 5, at the beginning, he heals a man that would had been paralyzed for 38 years. Heals him, hasn't been able to walk. He says, pick up your, be your bed and go and uh, pick up your mat and walk. And he's doing that. And he did it on the Sabbath and that caused some, uh, some issues. And then because of the issues that the religious leaders are saying, you know, why are you healing on the Sabbath? Jesus then defends his claim. He defends his identity. And we talked about this last week as if he's in a court of law. And now we see Jesus has revealed himself as the son of God, one-on-one -on -one with Nicodemus, kind of indirectly, directly with the Samaritan woman. He revealed himself to the Jewish leaders and when they were talking about Sabbath, and now to, to the crowd in John chapter 6. And now Jesus is telling the masses. He's telling the audience, every, all the Jews. And by the end of chapter 6, I want to kind of start there. Look with me there, John chapter 6, verse 60. Again, it says, on hearing it, and we're going to talk about what he talked about, uh, many of his disciples said, this is hard, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Look at verse 61, aware of his disciples that were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? By the end of today, we're going to ask the question, does the truth of God's word offend you? And we'll have to wrestle with that. And I, I pray that it'll be a blessing. Look at verse 66. From this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then a big pause. Jesus turns to his disciples and now asks just the 12, you do not want to leave too, do you? And so we see this pruning. You say, well, what in the world is going on? Well, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and see if we can get our mind around this. John chapter 6, verse 1 says, sometime after this, the same phrase, we don't know how long it was uh, between that and the previous discourse where, where Jesus was kind of defending himself, but it says, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs that he had performed by healing the sick. Now, when it says a great crowd, we will find out that it was 
5,000 men. Now, when you account for women and children, which would have certainly been involved, most estimate between 15 and 20,000 people. Now, I live in the Tri-Cities, Grand Haven, Ferrysburg, and Spring Lake. I know a bunch of you guys do as well. Even if you don't live there, in the wintertime, the Tri-Cities, the entire population is about 25,000 people. That's my understanding. I might be off by a little bit. But about that many people showed up at one time <laughs> to listen to Jesus. I mean, that is a crazy amount of people. And then it goes on and says, Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. And that's how we know that it was about halfway through his ministry. And so at this point, Jesus has compassion for the people. There's this great crowd, and he feeds them with five loaves and two fish. And we're not going to study that particular part of the miracle, but look at verse 12. It says, When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. When it says that they've had enough to eat. The idea there is that it was almost like a Thanksgiving meal, like you've had enough. How many know what I'm talking about? On Thanksgiving, you eat to the point you're saying, I've had enough. Well, that's kind of the, the point there. Or maybe at the Super Bowl party, right? You've had enough, right? It's like, okay, I got to stop. And at that point, then they said, let's pick up the pieces, 12 baskets full left over. Let's look at verse 14. It says, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed. So after he fed them, after he multiplied the five loaves, two fish, they began to say, and this is important, says, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then he said, they say, it says, Jesus, knowing what they had intended to come and to make him king by force, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. Listen, they wanted at that point to take Jesus and just declare him the king at that point. And it wasn't part of God's plan. But this is how, how powerful, how massive of a miracle this was. And I wanted to just give you that picture that they said, man, we want to make him king. Verse 15, right? And so Jesus slips away. He sends his disciples on their way. Um, then, they, then Jesus meets him on the water. And uh, everybody just say, wow, right? Like, that's crazy. And then they end up on the other side of the lake. And, uh, and so all of that happens within the same day. I mean, what a day. I mean, 24-hour period of Jesus. I mean, could, if you could walk with Jesus any 24-hour period, that might be in the top three, okay? I mean, that's pretty impressive. And then it says in verse 24, on the next day, uh, then some of the boats, uh, it says, once the crowd realized the next day that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they had kind of left, they, the, these people, they got into boats and they went to Capernaum to, in search of Jesus. As I was kind of thinking about that, it's this idea that, that Jesus has groupies at this point, right? It's like a band. They're following him. They, they're following the miracles and saying, man, we want more of that. And they found Jesus, and verse 59 says, in Capernaum, in the synagogue. And then let's look at what verse 25 says. It says this, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So we don't know what kind of time frame that, that uh, spanned. Probably the next day. Uh, but they're saying, look, when did you get here? And they were interested in what had happened the day before. Their stomachs had been filled. But Jesus, at this point, he identifies why all of the fanfare. And let's look at it in verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, 
You are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. It's not because of the signs of the healing of the boy or the the man that was crippled for 38 years. It wasn't even that the bread was multiplied. It says here specifically that they were there because they had their fill. They had tasted the bread. They had been satisfied with the loaves and the fish. Then let's look on. Jesus continues. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, what we're going to see here in the next few verses is that Jesus is talking about something spiritual, although he's using a physical uh, element to kind of describe a spiritual reality. They don't get it right away. It says, then they asked him, verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that that he has sent. And so they asked him, well, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate in the, uh, in the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, they're thinking physical still at this point primarily. Jesus is talking all spiritual at this point. And then look at what happens. They say, sir, always give us this bread. They're saying, we want that. The food that we had yesterday that sustained us, that we had all that we could have, enough to eat, that we were had to our fill. That's what we want. And Jesus, he lovingly says to them in verse 35, he says then, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. At this point, the light bulb is going on. They're understanding that he is not talking just about bread. Something is different here. And then we see it again in verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Right? He says, okay, I came down from heaven. So then it says, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? How is that possible? He's claiming to be God here. Verse 48 says the same thing. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of of the world a powerful statement here and what's happening you're saying okay is this literal is this is this really what i'm seeing and then it says then the jews began to argue sharply how can this man give us his flesh to eat 
There's a few that still are not getting it completely. And then he answers in verse 53, says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. You're thinking, Jesus, did you really have to go there, <laughs> right? But I wanted you to know that they would have understood this at this point, not as literal, but as figurative. They would have understood that he was not talking about eating, you know, gnawing on his you know, elbow or something like that, no cannibalism. They would have understood what Jesus was saying. Look, my teaching, my claim, this is who I am. I am God. And verse 60 prompted this great, this is a hard teaching. And they're saying, look, we know who your mother and father are. Um, how could you have come from heaven directly? And you say, well, what's going on here? Well, people, they're saying, all right, we like your miracles. We like following you. We like what's happening here. We like that you fed us, that the bread, the fish, all those things. But what's happening here now is that the crowd, they're questioning Jesus claims to be God. But they're saying, come on, that's too hard to believe. And I just want to pause here for a second. See, Jesus could have restated or re-clarified at this point and say, oh, that's what you think I'm, no, 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 that's not what I meant. But he doesn't do that. Instead, kind of like last week, he turns up the volume and he says, you need to believe in me. You need to consume all of me. Not just believe because of the miracles or because of the benefits. And that's what happened. That's why at that moment went from 15,000 to 20,000 people to the crowd and then to the 12. Now, today we have the benefit of all of the scripture, Genesis to Revelation. How many of you understand that's an incredible benefit, right? And depending on your upbringing, when you hear Jesus claim to be God, for probably, for probably for most of us, it's no big deal. You probably accept that as true, right? If we took a survey, my guess is over 90%, at least here. And, and, and so we don't deny that. It's not hard for most of us to believe that Jesus is God because of our upbringing or what we understand of Scripture. But, Put yourself in the shoes of those that were hearing it for the first time. Before you throw the crowd under the bus, let's look at Christianity today and see if there's some parallels. Do we struggle, too, with the claim that Jesus is God? Question, are there people who hang around the church who claim to be following Christ only for the miracles, only for the signs, only for the benefits? Maybe. Do people ever make Jesus into something that he's not? Happens all the time. Do people really understand who Jesus is, his claims? Because if they did, the only response that's appropriate is to be obeying his claims, to be serving him, and to be worshiping him with our lives. Or has there been a hijacking of Jesus in North America. I love James McDonald. I don't know if you ever listened to him out of Chicago. Um, 
There's a, he, uh, there's a teaching he does about hijacking Jesus in North America. He says that there's five false Christs that we struggle with as the American church. Let me just give them to you. The first is that we would see Jesus as a benefit Jesus. The idea that it's all about money, it's all about health, and, or that if you serve Jesus, you're not going to have problems. How many have heard the health and wealth, prosperity type gospel, right? That would be a false Christ. The second he identifies is homeless Jesus. I love this. The, the idea that it's all human-centered, caring for the hurting, right? It's an only horizontal in worship, this humanitarian, compassionate type of Jesus, and again, that is not a complete picture of who Christ is. Then there's the religious Jesus, a relic, a piece of jewelry, the crucifix. He talks about it. He says that there's churches with stained glass uh, pictures of Jesus, and there's a tear coming out of Jesus' eye. And, uh, and the only way James McDonald can do it, I won't do it justice, James McDonald says, look, Jesus is alive and he's not sad. And, uh, and I love that, right? He's not crying up in heaven. He... In, in, but religious Jesus. Number four, superstitious Jesus. The sports uh, complex, right? The home run Jesus, the, the, uh, the, uh, the rabbit foot Jesus, or magic Jesus. The, the, you know, okay, I'm going to do my devotions this morning. I'm going to pray, and so God will bless me, right? And so it's some sort of superstition that if you do the right things, then God's going to bless you. And then the last one, he says, a false Christ is this angry Jesus which is the opposite of the homeless Jesus, that, that somehow Jesus is mad. We see it in the pu preacher pu uh, pounding the pulpit. If I pounded this, it'd probably break. I'm not going to do that. But that Jesus somehow hates this and hates that and certainly is the opposite of love. And these are false Christs. And how many of us have seen those types of ideas kind of emerge, right? And it leaves people today uh, kind of answering the question, who is Jesus, right? And it really gets at the importance of what we're teaching over these several weeks. Who is Jesus? Turn to your neighbor and say, who is Jesus? And what is our response? If he is the living water, right, then we should let him fill us. If he is the bread of life, he should sustain us. And we must be consumed with him. We must be filled with him. The whole idea, you are what you eat, put that in the spiritual context, you are what you eat. We must be filled with Jesus. Let's look at it. Verse 54 continues, says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them in the last day. What a promise. I love that. It says, For my flesh is real food, and my, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's a promise of eternal life. He said this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Jesus is God. 
There's Old Testament references here. There's uh, references to Jesus being the Passover lamb. But the question I want to ask is, do you believe? Do you believe this? Or do you only believe when things are going your way? Or do you only turn, maybe on the opposite side, you only turn to Jesus when things are tough? I almost preached a message. In fact, I really wrestled with this, looking at the story where Jesus walks on water and they're in the Sea of Galilee, which is 600 feet below. And I did a lot of study around this. And I I was going to talk about the storms of life, uh, which will come. Uh, My two points were going to be the certainty of the storm, but then the promise of his presence. And, uh, and, and I didn't go that direction, but, uh, but certainly that, that is true. But there are some people that only turn to God when they're in trouble, when they're struggling. Or do you abandon ship, run away, because, and maybe your roots are shallow, and so the winds come and you get uprooted, and then you try to kind of get planted again at some other point, having a false or incomplete understanding of who Jesus is. This is a big deal. It's a huge deal. I can think of several people, very quickly, did in my office this week, where people have fallen away and walked away, like in verse 66. From this time on, the disciples turned back and no no longer followed him. Now, my question is, how can we, as a body, avoid that type of falling out? How could we avoid that kind of instability? How do we avoid turning back? How do we make sure that our faith is not hijacked in some way or another? That we would, with, with some false view of who Jesus is. How can we be rooted with a deep understanding, not based on feelings, but based on the Word of God? And my, as I've been praying, it really comes down, I believe, at least in part, the answer comes in verse 67 through 69. Let's look at it. Jesus says, ask his 12, you don't want to leave too, do you? And then look at Peter's response. Simon Peter, verse 68, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. We need to embrace the words of Jesus that are eternal life, to understand that at a deep level. And then, like the disciples, like Peter and the disciples, they experienced Jesus. It says they came to believe and to know that he was the Holy One of God. And so they understood it, not only here in their head, but they understood it in their hearts, and they were not going to turn away, although one of the twelve in the last verse of the, of the chapter, one will fall away. Listen, unless Jesus becomes a part of your life, unless he invades every part of your life, if I can be so bold, this is what it takes to follow Jesus. Total commitment. The issue at hand is total surrender to Him. 
And when I say that, if there's something that stirs up that kind of, that that is offensive to you, I would say you need to do some work around that. Because Jesus is God, period. And if Jesus never provided another thing, is it enough? He has provided life, eternal life, for you. That cannot be taken away. And my question is, is that enough? And now, in chapter 6 here, once and for all, Jesus is claiming to be God, and that's what led him to the cross. That's why he was crucified. But let me ask you, does that offend you? Does that offend you? Jesus died for your sins. He's provided for your eternity. What if he never helps you financially from this moment forward? What if he takes his hand of safety right off and there's no more safety? What if your needs are never met from this point? Are you serving a benefit Jesus? Some false Christ? I am quite sure that God does not want to be your genie in a bottle. The question this morning, is salvation enough? See, we don't want to serve a benefit Jesus, some help me Jesus, some bless me Jesus, some vending machine type of Jesus. Instead, we want to serve and worship Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. And if we really understand that, really under, believe that, we need to be moving towards complete obedience, complete service to Him, complete worship to Him. We must be people that are seeking His face, not His hands, not just the benefits. And what Peter says here, I love it. He says, if you are not the Christ, there's nothing. And what he's saying here, he's saying, look, total surrender is what God desires from us. When we bring in new members at the church, uh, one of the things that we talk about are our seven membership commitments. And the worship team, you guys could come at this point. Uh, our seven membership commitments, the very first one, is, we always describe it as the most difficult. It's giving up your rights. It's this idea of total surrender. Everyone just say that, total surrender, right? This idea that we are not our own, we are bought with a price, we need to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, right? That's, that's what we talk about, and it's a tough one, and, and it's something that we wrestle with as believers to get us to that point. I also, we added kind of this, this uh, our circle of uh, discipleship, we want to be encouraging people to go around this cycle where we start over here at salvation, we're an infant disciple, we become a maturing disciple, then we want to be coming to the point where we're, we're at this place of total surrender, and when we're at that point, we reach back for one and bring them to a place of total surrender, but we also reach forward, and say it with me, to reach one more, right? To reach one more, but that comes from this mindset of total surrender. And as I wrap up, as you read John chapter 6, my understanding from a big picture is that the reason that Jesus fed the 5,000 
was not just to provide for them physically in that moment, but was to create an environment where they could talk spiritually of who Jesus is. A physical picture to relate to a spiritual reality. And this whole section is really, it's talking about our commitment to Jesus. And we've got to wrestle with it. What do we believe? What do you believe? What do you believe? What do you believe about who Jesus is? With your head bowed and eyes closed, I would just want to speak to maybe someone here that is away from Jesus, maybe has walked away, said, man, that's too hard, but today there's a revelation, and you're, you're saying, man, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to come to Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, we want to offer you the gift of salvation. I don't know everyone here. Don't want to take anything for granted. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior and you're ready to make that commitment of total commitment, total surrender, I want you just to lift up your hand and I want to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. Who here first service needs Jesus to be your Savior, to come back to the Lord? Or maybe it's the first time you've ever, yeah, amen. Young man up front, anyone else saying, I just, I need to make sure my life is right. God is number one. Anyone else? For the sake of the one, could we just pray a quick sinner's prayer? You repeat these words. It's not the words of this prayer that will save anyone. It's really believing in your heart. But let's pray this together. Say, dear Lord, I believe in you, that you came to earth lived a sinless life, died for me, and rose from the grave. And so I give you my life. Please forgive me of my sin. Make me clean. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And we rejoice with the one that comes back to the Lord. I love the story of the, the 99 sheep that are left so that you can reach one more. And that's kind of what's happened here this morning. And God, he comes and he saves us. He saves us. I also want to deal before we partake of communion together. There may be some that as I'm speaking this morning, maybe you've had a false view of who Jesus really is. Maybe your idea of Jesus has been hijacked in some way. That maybe you've been serving just because of the benefits. Or maybe you just hang around in some sort of superstitious that you're putting in your time so life will go okay. Or maybe you've got this idea that Jesus, you know, it's just about religion. And you don't understand the relationship as much. I, I just feel like there's, there's probably many of us that struggle with some of these ideas. And I just want to pray for you quickly. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that, that we would have a right understanding of who you are. God, help us to believe 
your word. And your word that declares that you are the Son of God. And Lord, I pray that if we have had false ideas, incomplete ideas of who you are, I pray that we would be growing in our knowledge, growing in our understanding. God, put our feet on a solid rock, so to speak, where we can stand upon who you are. And God, we pray this. I pray for every young person here. I pray it for every student, for every single God, I pray it for every married couple, for young and old alike, to the oldest among us. God, I pray that we would wrestle with who you are, and then, God, we would put our full trust, full obedience, full serving, full worship into who you are because of what we believe. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand this morning, if you can. We're going to prepare to receive the elements. What we're going to do is have two kind of aisles. We'll kind of start in the front and then work our way to the back. You kind of come to the, to the two center aisles. You come and grab your elements and then make your way around and then back to your seats. So you kind of come and then kind of circle back around if you can. And what we want to do is we want to hold these elements until we can partake together. There's something powerful of doing this together. And we're going to sing a song that talks about what we believe. And the question that I want you to just kind of have on your mind is what Peter said. It says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And the song we're going to sing is going to kind of declare our belief in that. And I want it to just really well up inside of you to the point where you have confidence and trust Jesus' claim. And so we're going to come and we're going to talk about the sacrifice here just momentarily. And we're going to come to this, say, this point of total surrender where we're going to eat his flesh, drink his blood, be consumed with Jesus and all that he is to the point where we can obey, serve, and worship him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How can you preach that Jesus is the bread of life? That he is, his body was broken. I'm sorry, his body was bruised, never broken, right? But he gave it up for us. His blood was shed on the cross for us. And in Jesus we have life. So what we're about to partake is what Jesus encouraged us to do as often as we meet, right? So we do it on a regular basis. We take communion. We receive from the Lord's Supper to remember the sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus giving it all. But we also take the chance to look on the inside and say, Lord, if there's anything within us that's not pleasing to you, we purify ourselves, we confess our sins. So I encourage you to do that. We don't want to take these elements in an unworthy manner. We need to make sure our hearts are pure, that we're covered with the blood of Jesus. So important. But then we also look forward to the day of his return.
his promise. Because the Bible says that Jesus, after he ascended to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, right? Yeah. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us. But then the Bible is clear that he will return for those who believe in him. Let's thank the Lord for his body. Lord, we declare you are the bread of life. You sustain us. You give us life. When your body was beaten and bruised and your body was damaged on our behalf, the result was life. We're grateful for that. Thank you, Lord. Let's partake of the body together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then I just want to paint this picture that Jesus' blood was shed for you. Blood would have dripped from his back that was beaten, from his hands and his feet, from a crown of thorns placed on his head. It was real blood, it wasn't just a show. His blood was for you. In His blood, there's forgiveness of sin. There's healing. We believe that. There's provision. Let's just thank Him for His blood. Lord, we consume Your blood. We drink it today. We want to be consumed with You. Fill us up, Lord to the point where we'll never be thirsty again. And Lord, I pray that a healing atonement would just flow through this place, that you touch your people. Pray in Jesus' name. Let's partake of the blood together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Give you a moment just to attend to these little plastic cups. Kind of send those to the aisle, and then the ushers will grab those momentarily. When your hands become free, I just want to encourage you to lift both hands to heaven as a sign of total surrender. Total surrender. Total commitment. This whole passage in John 6 is talking about our commitment to Christ. I pray that if it's offensive that you would grapple with that, that you would understand the true nature of Jesus' body and His blood and that you would commit your life to obey Him, to serve Him, and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's just close our time with a proclamation that He's coming back and that He is coming for a pure church. In Jesus' name.